On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies? We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Today, we're talking with internationally best-selling author Vari McFarland. Vari began her career in journalism before she turned her witty eye to novels. Her first book, You Had Me at Hello, was an instant success and has been translated into 16 languages. Now she's written seven books and she lives in Nottingham with a man and a cat. <laughs> Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Vari. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So we love rom-coms here at Pop Fiction Women, so we have a lot in common and a lot we want to explore with you today. But first, please just tell our readers a little bit about your new novel, Just Last Night. It is about four friends who have been friends since six forms. Does that translate in America, six form? You know, like to university, college. Yeah, like you're still at school or at six form college, but you're 16 to 18. Okay. And so you're a little bit older than really young at school. And so it's four friends who have been friends for many years. By the time we meet them, they're in their mid 30s. And then something shocking and unexpected happens. And our protagonist, the heroine Eve, is left peacefully together this great shock and upheaval that's happened to their group and while she's doing that she discovers she's in an unconsummated rather than unrequited love with one of her best friends Ed and in the fallout she realizes that secrets have been kept from her and the friendship group is not as she thought so it's really about her sort of finding her way through that and reassessing her life in her mid-30s and working out who the people around her really are. I've made it sound like a domestic thriller now haven't I? You're so close to it and you've spent so long with it. You're actually really bad. Or I certainly am really bad at just suddenly summing it up on a button the way other people oh. do so well. <laughs> no. Oh, you did a great job there. The wit comes in the execution. We read that and love it. So Thank let's you. talk more about Eve. We love to discuss complicated women, which yeah. is not as scary and crazy of an idea as some people think. Like <laughs> complicated. Oh, no. But uh, it's just a human being with contradictions and conflict. And one of our favorite situations we find women in is at a crossroads in fiction. And Eve is certainly there. Her world has been shattered by this tragedy, it changes her life in an instant. And then through the book, we get to explore how Eve is affected and what she learns and how she handles it. We'd love to hear more about your development of Eve, who she is, who, what inspired her and how you found her voice. That's interesting. I've answered a lot of questions recently about story idea, about the heroine, but more commonly people are like, how did the story idea come to you? And it's such a unsatisfying and convoluted, <laughs> confused answer, but I actually don't know 
I genuinely find it hard to go back and unpick when certain ideas came to me and whether or not I had the whole thing at the start and all the rest of it. And when it comes to the heroine, the protagonist, they tend to grow out of the situation. I tend to think about the particular set of challenges that I want to throw at the woman who navigates the story. So it's it's funny, isn't it? It's kind of cart before horse. Like, does the heroine <laughs> define the story or does the story define the heroine? I think, to be honest, a lot of the time it's the story. So Eve is 30-something, which I think all my heroines have been because it's just such a useful decade yeah. of you're old enough to have regrets and you're old enough to have real concerns about, oh God, I'm getting old, even though mm. you're not. Really. You're not. <laughs> um, yeah. But you've still got an awful lot of choices left to make. It's such a, tr- I mean, my 30s for me, that was a tricky decade. And I think that I will keep playing that furrow for a while. But also Eve is in a bit of a crap job. She's underachieving. She's in love with one of her best friends, but she's not going to say anything about it. And at the start of the book, his dreadful girlfriend becomes his dreadful fiance. And mm. she's sort of a spectator in life mm. rather than a proper participant. And I think that very much her arc is about taking control. Like the tragedy that happens forces her to look with honest eyes at a lot of things that she had not been looking at. Mm. Bumping along, which again, you know, feels very real to me. You bump yes. in certain, <laughs> <Yeah>. certain <laughs> situations, not really looking honestly at what's going on. And so I suppose her voice, I mean, her voice is a lot like mine, to be honest. She's just she's <laughs> sardonic and cynical and she's quite sensitive. And yeah, she just sort of grew organically really out of the situation. And I set it in my home city, Nottingham, really just because I wanted that easy familiarity because the plot was such a challenge to me. I didn't want to cast up problems, but Nottingham right. is also a useful city in that I don't know what the American equivalent would be in that it's not one of the big metropolises. It's not Manchester. It's not London. It's not super mm-hmm. exciting, but it's got enough going on that you have quite kind of ambitious, interesting, bright young things that live here as well. So, uh, so she yeah. seemed real to me. She seemed like a girl I would have a pint with in the pub. <laughs> sure. Uh, can I just tell you how incredibly refreshing the answer to this question is? Because, you know, it is our job to ask these questions and to find out, you know, how did this idea come to you? And of course, when you're promoting the book and you're excited about it and you're done and we're excited about it, you want a nice, neat narrative for how it all came yeah. to you. And it just, in my experience and also speaking with other writers, it's not really very truthful. It's, oh, well, it's Thank you so much for saying that because honestly, the guilt, <laughs> I, I, have no. complete, I have complete guilt that there are two answers I can never give. One of them is I was looking out the window of the bus and I saw this thing happen. And in that moment, I just thought no one has ever written a book about X. And then I off yeah. I went. And it's that wonderful like light bulb moment. Mm. And the other thing I do that's utterly disappointing to everybody is when people say, now, did this happen in your life? Every single time I have to go, I'm a fiction writer. I'm right. No. Every time I feel like I'm thinking, oh, great, you made it up. That's a bit flat. (laughs) Well, no disappointment here. In fact, the utter opposite. I'm so delighted by that answer. And I think it'll be reassuring to our listeners who are writers because it's not how it happens. Now, you will promote and you will market your book and you will go back and make a narrative that you can take. But I love that you started with, you know, this is really not not how it happens. I love it. It is very reassuring. (laughs) So speaking of complicated women, although this is Eve's story, her best friend Susie is truly a force. She is. 
Yes. And I love <laughs> this description of her that I just want to read from the book. Sardonic, audacious, confident with a humanity and humor that always shone through. Confidence and compassion and a metric ton of sass. And jokingly, <laughs> a cross between Mother Teresa and Samantha from Sex and the City. And then Eve says of Susie, you were always too much, but we wanted more. And I just thought, yes, yes. I want people to say that about me. She's too much, but give me another helping, please. So tell us a little about Susie as Eve's foil. Susie as Eve's foil. Susie is a girl I have never been, but I've been friends with her myself. <laughs> and she is that girl that when you meet her at school, she's just sort of wreathed in a confidence and a poise and a cool. You think one day when I grow up, I'll be her and you never are. You never get there somehow. <laughs> and she's very quick and acerbic and she can be as we've seen in some of the humor in the book, she can be quite brutal, but she <laughs> never for me, and I hope I got this balance right, she never for me crosses the line into being some sort of bitch. She's like you were no. saying, she's sassy, I suppose, more than that. And there's a line in the book about her and Eve that she had described Eve to her colleague as we're exact opposites who are completely alike. Yeah. And the two of them are oh, a, a real contrast, but hopefully you can also see that they have a disposition in common, even though all the superficial trappings are so different between the two of them. And, you know, Eve's lost in this broken, unspoken love and she's a sort of serial monogamist and Susie is queen of the hookup who's never been in love. So in their behaviours, they're very different as well. Yeah, but she captured that so well. I love oh, it. Thank you. Well, that brings me into my next question. Unlike your prior novels and more like typical rom-com story that focuses just on a love story, Just Last Night is a story about friendship, which of course is another form of love. Yeah. You write in the book, there's something exceptional about friendships with friends you've known since you were young. Yeah. They know all the versions of you. They know how you were built. They have a map for you. There's a shorthand between you and a love that is as strong as any blood tie. Kate and I have actually been friends since college, so we can relate to this. Oh, how nice. <laughs> yeah, yes. We love this element of a love story, and we'd love to hear more about why you wanted to explore the complicated ties of friendship. That's an interesting question. When I started out, I wrote an ensemble in You Had Me at Hello that I still love to this day, and I didn't really attack it thinking, oh, the friends are really important. What I was thinking was, if these characters are people that the reader's going to spend time with and they're on the page, Age, then they need to be entertaining, they need to be fun, they need to earn their screen time. So mm. I put a lot of effort into making them sparky. That kind of carried on. And then it really surprised me that I got feedback all the time going, oh, we just love the friends. We love the friends characters, more, more of the friends. And I was really amazed because I suppose I, at some level, I always assumed that the people just wanted to spend the maximum amount of time in your rom-com A plot with the love interest. Um, and they didn't see the friends as annoying distraction or as the kind of second best. They loved it almost as much as the romance, really. So when it came to last night, I realised that I'd never really written an ensemble that had known each other for that long. I always kind of wrote the gang that had fallen together through the crap jobs you have in your early 20s and all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And because I live in Nottingham, I moved here when I was 12. I still hang around with mates that I had since uh, I was 12 years old. So mm -hmm. I still have friends. And obviously, you know, I've met friends through college. I've met friends through jobs. So I have friends from later stages of my life as well. But I have those 
close friends that now go back absolutely decades with me. And I just thought that it was such a nice thing because I was a writer I read who said school friends are in a different category as well because you made friends with them before your brain was fully formed. So <laughs> even if they're awful, you're going to stick with them because they just get a pass that nobody else does. They're almost like part of you, like, you know, trees twining around each other. The right. And it just, I suppose it just all worked for the huge shock of the novel, the fact yeah. that they've got this history. And with school friends as well, you generally know their parents because obviously they lived at home when you met them. So you went around and met them. Yes. had those sleepovers, met their siblings. And so it gave the loss in the book such an intensity. Right. Yeah. I think it's also indicative of your 30s. I think a love story in your 20s, in your early 20s, when you are just figuring out, it does tend to be more all-consuming. But by the time yeah. you've gotten to your 30s, your your friends matter. Love is, it takes yeah. a central role, but the friends are really important in helping work all of that out. Yeah, so. yeah. And from a really basic point of view, in your 20s, I don't know if this is, has been true of you, but it's certainly been true of my friendship groups. In your 20s, you can relocate without much grief somewhere else. You kind of think, well, we're in a 20s we're all ambitious we're going to go places we're going to scatter and I always say to anybody younger than me that's saying oh I don't know if I should make this move I'm always like do it by 27 because something happens after that (laughs) in your 30s I think you're far more aware that you would be sacrificing friendships that you've built up and that you can't leave people so I think you're far more enmeshed by your 30s I mean you might obviously people might have started families by 30 by their 30s which is another level of commitment to a place but I think that everything just starts to matter more in your 30s if that isn't too judgmental. No, <laughs> no, no. The stakes sense. are higher. Yeah. 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 Which is yeah. great for the story. I um, think it's an, in just last night, she's when she split up with her long-term ex, he actually has said some really pissed off things to her about, yeah, you know, you, you won't go because you won't leave the friendship group. And I think mm-hmm. that that wouldn't necessarily ring true if Eve were a 25-year-old. But That's once right. she's a 34, 35-year-old, you're like, yes, actually, I can imagine someone saying, I'm not giving all this up. Even if, aside from the friendship group, what she's got isn't particularly great. That's right. absolutely true. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that I swear just keeps coming up recently on the podcast with the books we've been reading is characters who have secrets. And we've been discussing how that can really make a character complicated. And they're all different kinds of secrets. Some are protective, some are fun, yeah. some can tear relationships apart. And as readers, we've just decided we love a good secret. So <laughs> what interests you about women with secrets? And do you think that's an important way to add complexity to the character and or drive the plot forward? I've never thought of it in terms of secrets. Something I keep coming back to in all my books is the reality not matching the image with people. Oh, I find that just ah, it's oh. endless, I think, for writers. Like it's such an interesting topic. And we do it all the time. We judge other people all the time on insufficient information. And so I think the big appeal with the secrets in Just Last Night are that it forces Eve to look differently at these people she was so close to and thought she knew every spitting cough of what had gone on and then she's suddenly put in a position where she has to reassess and then the secret that comes out quite traumatic secret that comes out near the end of the novel again that forces her to say to herself I thought I knew this family I thought I understood who the heroes and villains of the situation were and I didn't so a secret is a great way to teach your protagonist something and perhaps at the same time they're being wrong-footed so is the reader the reader's trying to fit it together with what they've just found out and thinking oh god everything's turned on its head so I think you're always looking for that that beautiful 
moment where the reader shares the protagonist's shock. I like that. I love that. <laughs> Am I all right to keep saying, I keep swinging back and forth between heroine and protagonist because I'm never sure if heroine sounds that you're saying that is <laughs> <laughs> a really impressive person. So that's the thing that holds you back from it. <laughs> oh my God. Grown up. <laughs> I think it works. Yeah. Either way. <laughs> so in honor of Valentine's Day this year, we released a special episode in which we examined everything we had learned so far from the pop fiction we've covered in terms of love and romance. It was quite an exercise for the two of us and it turned out to be one of our favorite episodes. And as part of that, we each realized what themes spoke to us the most and more importantly, what that said about our own personal damage. (laughs) Well, because I'm drawn to stories that reflect the thin line between love and hate, which is an element of just last night. For me, that's just a stand-in as a way to say, the person I love makes me feel everything, the good and the bad immediately and deeply. And so I think the thin line between love and hate is not, do I really love you? Do I really hate you? It's just that I feel everything and that's the good and the bad. And I realized on that, that I'm drawn to stories about the one that got away, which you've explored in your prior novels. And, (laughs) you know, I've heard you say, and you've even said it in our discussion here today, that you can't really have proper regret in your 30s, you know, because in the 20s, there's nothing we can't really fix or change. So what interests you about these themes and why do you think you keep coming back to them? Oh, that's almost a psychoanalytical question, isn't it? Yes. We get on the couch a lot here (laughs) on Pop Fiction Women, so... I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think regret. I wrote You Had Me Alone when I was 31. And I actually can, having said, oh, I can't remember how I got the idea for any plot. I actually can remember the development of You Had Me in that I absolutely loved my university years. I went to Manchester University like the characters are in Manchester and You Had Me. And it was such an intense three years, you know, I, I made all these friends. I had this wonderful time, fell in love with the city. And I was thinking to myself one day, God, imagine if you met the love of your life during those years, you know, in all that turmoil and intensity. So you associated them with that time and then you never saw them again. Imagine how intense that would be. And I think being 31, it was the first time I really could taste proper regret, by which I don't mean I had personal regrets myself, but that I realized that I'd sort of crossed a line about turning 30 into a, a decade where you really could look back and feel like something was quite a long time ago and that perhaps mm. choices couldn't be unmade. And I think that I just keep going back to that as a writer with, with Eve saying, I think there's a line in the novel where she says, we haven't made any irreversible mistakes yet, but we can feel ourselves right on the verge of making them, which is quite a dark oh, thing to be that. saying in the opening mm. pages of a romantic But then Hester goes on and proposes to Ed and Ed, who basically knows that he's with a dreadful person, accepts her proposal. And I think we've all been there. We've all actually seen friends make mad decisions. But yeah, a regret, I don't know. I'm someone who procrastinates and really struggles to come to a decision. So maybe regret is the hindsight mm. version of procrastination that I want to look back and think, what if, what if, what if all the time? <laughs> oh. Well, that's a beautiful segue into my next question, which is, I heard you say that fiction writers have a lot in common with habitual liars. <laughs> I by that. <laughs> love. And you said we take things that sort of happen to us and what if them into something that's big enough for a novel. I thought that was so funny and also <laughs> accurate. And it also is in line with what you were saying before. The moment of a story starting isn't really, the genesis is hard to pin down, but you know when you're in that what if stage, right? Yes. Totally. Can you talk a little about that? 
totally. To give you a, a bizarre example, most people, you're on a bus journey, you'll be looking at your phone. I certainly would be looking at my phone plenty. But I think the difference between a writer brain in this certain situations and a normal functioning <laughs> is that if you saw an old lady walking along the street alongside the bus and there was a young man running towards her and then he just ran past, you, you had a moment of like, oh God, is he going to mug her? And then he just mm. ran past. A normal person would be like, oh good, the old lady didn't get mugged. What the, what the writer brain does is think, oh God, what, what if I saw that? And then what if this? And what if I had to get off the bus and try and intervene? And what if, what if? What if? And I think that's how, or it's certainly, I mean, there's as many writing processes as there is writers. So this is only my opinion, but I think that's what we do. I think we just take that little kernel of something real and grow it and think, well, what if, what if that had actually spun off into another direction? And I think with a lot of fibbers and tall tale tellers, I think often you will, if you look, if you drill down, there is something real there. I think the example I gave the other day was the person who comes into work and says, oh God, it's terrible because my living room ceiling broke and my whole bathroom fell into the living room. Literally, my bath was in the living room. And everyone would be like, good God, your bath was in the living room. (laughs) As the story goes on, they inevitably row back and admit actually, no, the ceiling was just sagging a bit. And that's, I think that is where the lying and the writing, it's just you develop and expand it into something exciting enough to justify being in fiction. And it's particularly useful with romantic comedy because I think think the real challenge and the difficulty of romantic comedy is people want escapism and realism. They don't want it yes. to place on Saturn. And I think that's a little bit what went wrong with the genre on screen, that I think we got to a point where Justin Timberlake was organising flash mobs in the Grand Central Station. <laughs> oh, and as much, as much as I like to see Justin Timberlake <laughs> organising flash squads in Grand Central Station, I can't say it's saying a lot to me about my life. <laughs> oh. oh, that's so perfect. You're right. Well, that's a great example too, because you you can go too far. I've seen some writing advice that most beginning writers don't do enough what ifs. Do you push yourself? You're like, okay, I think I've got it. And then do you push yourself a little bit more and do some more what ifs? Or do you just know at this point? You don't know. And to be perfectly honest, you don't know on the day of publication that you got it right. Oh. You, rely, you just have to rely on your judgment and your editor's judgment. And early on, just last night, it was actually just before the lockdown started in the UK. It was last March. I called my editor and basically had an hour long wail on the phone to her and said, I'm trying to do something terrible here. I'm trying to do a harrowing rom-com and I ought to be stopped as soon as possible. It's dreadful. And she was like, no, it's going to be great and you're going to carry on. <laughs> so that that's the honest answer. It's like, well, how do you know you've got the amount of adventure and excitement right versus the reality you yet you don't I mean I do put things to the test of if someone was telling me this story would I believe it has this ever happened to anybody I know there's a soap opera here called EastEnders and I say to my editor when I think it's going too far I'm like I think this is a double bill Christmas special EastEnders you've crossed the it, line it's got to be so over the top yeah to, to, to merit being the Christmas special um, a little bit I don't know if it's revealing that my imagination is quite prosaic I think a, a useful test as well is how difficult I find it to write. If I'm sat there blocked thinking I can't make this feel real, then I know that I've messed up. But when you hit the sweet spot, it is wonderful because if I never met you, my last novel was I took the fake dating trope, you know, the one. Yes, romance turned romance. Yes, exactly. Yes. The boys trope. And I thought, how can I make it seem real? How can I sell it to the reader that two adults they might recognize would actually do something this ludicrous? And I think I got away with it. So when you get away, with it it's wonderful because you get all the excitement and the escapism but you also get to tell a story that has real resonance but maybe so, it's not for me to say whether I got, I got it right but oh yeah. no Absolutely. you're getting it right
right? Yes, That's for sure. Absolutely. So I want to shift gears just to talk to you about your road to publication. I know you're a journalist by training and you left your job at a paper in 2007 and didn't publish your first novel. You oh, had me very hello. well researched, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. <laughs> We're both lawyers. It's just we don't know how to do anything any other way. So that came out in 2012. I'd love to hear sort of what those five years looked like for you when you first made the leap to finally getting published and, and how much you think timing and the genre you were writing in affected your path? Well, the five years, I'll be honest, were progressively more nightmarish. I would strongly suggest <laughs> to anybody listening who is interested in writing, if you can keep your full-time job while <laughs> manuscript, please to God do it. I was 31 and I was a feature writer on my local paper here in Nottingham. And I was very lucky that my partner, his job at the time could cover the mortgage. So he said, I believe in you, go and do it. And I think that the benefit of it is that I did work my socks off and I wrote You Had Me and I rewrote You Had Me and I also had a thriller novel that I'd worked on as well. So I was productive and I think I was productive in a way I wouldn't have been if I was just kind of fiddling at it around the edges. So I gave it my all. That's the good side of it. The very large bad side of it is that I was just kind of wildly optimistic slash bordering arrogant and just thought because I was in journalism and because I, it's that real thing of I want it so go it will happen. Then then went out there trying to, to get an agent and to get published. And of course, I was a nobody with a funny name, an unpronounceable name, living in nowhere as far as a Londoner is concerned, trying to say, hey, here's my novel. And of course, it meets resounding indifference. And regards the popularity of the genre, absolute doldrums, I think, which is not something I was aware of yet again until I started shopping my manuscript around. So I got an agent and then they took it out to the women's fiction departments. And I'm still published by HarperCollins or William Morrow in, in the States. But they were the only ones that said that made me an offer in 2012. There was closed doors all around. And I think it was sort of a long time after the gold rush for women's fiction of that nature, the Bridget Jones stuff, you know, late 90s, early noughties. And so there I was kind of what, 2007 to 2010, by the time that perhaps I was going out with the manuscript. Yeah. And it was just really unpopular. I think there was the kind of the fantasy fiction craze off the back of George R.R. R. Martin, the, the YA craze. There was a lot of crazes, but I think right now we're in a bit of a rom-com craze, thanks to Bridgerton and I think we're really on the resurgence. But, you know, unfortunately, paying my bills couldn't wait for 2021. <laughs> so, yeah, it was tough. And, and I think a lot of publishing houses were actually looking to get rid of rom-coms. So even if what you're offering is a really good example of the genre, I think that they just think, well, that's great, but we're buying oranges and that's an apple. Right. So, Do you think about going back to those houses and saying you made a Big mistake. Big mistake. Huge. 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 <laughs> You're Julia Roberts. Exactly. Pretty Huge. I actually, do you know what? I tell this story about the power of a really nice no, but there was an editor at another publishing house. This is before HarperCollins had picked me up and I got a call. I was working part-time and I had to go to the lobby of the, of the office and I had a call from my agent going, right, this is a no from this publisher, but it's a really nice no. I'd like to read it to you. And I was like, really? You know, when you're like, I've come all the way out of the office, but really nice. <laughs> No, I'm pretty sure I don't want to hear it. And he read it out to me and, oh, I'll have to, I'm just vaguely thinking I'll probably have to consider which book. She said, we've published another book that's been a huge success that just has a few too many similarities thematically. You had me at hello, so we can't pick up Fari, but she said, I'm really sorry about it. And she said, I'm genuinely heartbroken to have to say no, because I think she's going to be really successful and have a massive career. And I just want to say, you know, wish her well, which was lovely. And that was a real turning point moment. Even though it was a no for me, I thought, my God, someone in the industry thinks I've got a chance. Someone yeah. in the industry thinks I'm okay. And I could tell because she was saying no, I knew that she must be telling the truth. 
truth because why yeah. say that if you do you right. know there's nothing in it for her to say it right. and then right. years later I finally met her face to face at an industry party and I said to her when I was at my lowest and considering packing it all in you were the person that kept me going and she burst into tears oh, <laughs> oh it was so sweet. lovely and so what a small act of kindness that she right. didn't have to offer that just made such a difference to me at the time yeah and for you to share that with her so that she knows sometimes we make these small acts of kindness and we don't know if they resonate and that was really important to you you never forget though do you is no. you, particularly when you're down the person yes. who's nice to you you really really remember it well we have also been thinking about the resurgence of rom-coms that are coming up these days and we've heard you talk about the key elements of a good rom-com uh, novel we'd yes. love to hear you talk about that the key elements well obviously i can only speak from my own taste and my own interest and i don't ever want to make it sound as if i think that my resume of wishes is definitive in some way it's simply my opinion i think there tends to be a conflict between your love interests because as i've said many a time everybody can design two attractive people who flirt with each other really like each other and then want to go to bed with each other but there is not much peril in that and <laughs> what you're looking for obviously is the pride and prejudice thing of why are these two people uniquely well suited but they have to think they're uniquely ill suited that is a big trick to pull off so when you have your conflict between your love interests, I always think make the source of conflict something interesting. I think part of the reason that, again, the screen genre became a bit trivial and silly is because you had, she's a city slicker who packs Laboutins to go to visit a farm and he's a really laid back cowpoke and he's hilarious and he's great and she just needs to lighten up, which is a dreadful source of conflict. And yes. <laughs> what I think is a lot more interesting is if you have, say, a woman who is compulsively honest to the point where she, you know, perhaps hurts feelings, but she has a reason for it and she lives life out in the open. What if your male love interest is somebody who very much lives life in the shadows and is quite deceptive about himself for reasons, which again, you can dig into. Now, to me, that's a really interesting form of conflict. There's that thing of have two really interesting people firing off each other and write the man, this is going to sound gender normative and bad, but write a man who sounds like a man because I think sometimes <laughs> with romance, it could stray into men talking like they've just been to a therapy session, you know, right. perhaps living is an embodiment of the woman's romantic dreams rather than being a man you might feel you might meet. Give him some challenge, give him his own point of view, give him his own narrative. And I think that every time he is in a scene with your heroine, I think you should know what his perspective is so that he isn't just kind of puppeted around her plot. And then this is so basic, but I mean, it's something I always bear in mind. I think you have to have some kind of time limit. I think you know, if these two people can get around to the idea of each other anytime in the next five years. Again, there's not a lot of peril. I think you always want someone to be going away. <laughs> someone to come back for a limited time only. So right. this is their chance. There's a bit in just last night where um, Eve talks sadly about opportunities in life being like doors that are opening and closing. Yes. You either bolt through them or you don't. And I think that, that you've got to feel in the novel that the door has opened for something and that they've got a limited amount of time to realise they should bolt through it. Oh, I love and that. Incredibly rambling answer now, wasn't it? No, <laughs> no, I love that. Oh, I'm just thinking about it. It's really one of those things that's deceptively simple. It even just the premise of putting two people together that are different. You want that conflict, but you don't want it to feel contrived the way the city slicker out in the cattle ranch. Uh, we all saw can... that film, right? <laughs> oh, yes. 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 And it doesn't work. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but when you describe it, these elements, it seems like she said, deceptively simple. And yet we've all seen it be done so poorly at times. But when you get it right, man, I mean, that's why we're Magic. saying we do love rom-coms. And the one element that we always talk about, and we've really gotten pretty intense about this this one, we've got criteria, <laughs> is, the, is mm-hmm. what we call the big speech. I've heard oh, you say like the declaration yes. of love. Oh, I mean, we yeah. have like elements were like the big speech has to have this it has to be that we we debate it because we never agree on the big speech i'll be like that was amazing she's like that was horrible (laughs) you're so right the big speech is a fine line because it is in all of the contrivances and escapism of a rom-com possibly the the declaration speech is the most unrealistic thing that you're writing Mm -hmm. right you know obviously people have said lovely things in wedding vows obviously people have said lovely things in proposals I don't believe if it happens, I have sadly been left out of it. It's a big If a man has ever burst into a pub and said, I love you and I'm going to tell you why in front of all your friends to your <laughs> immense surprise. <laughs> and yet somehow in a rom-com we buy it. We not only buy it, we fully expect it. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And I mean, I know I always want that moment. I always want the big moment. And just last night, I'm wary of spoilers, but in just last night, it's a complete departure for me out of all the books there is not actually a word for word declaration and there isn't it, i know it just I was gonna ask right. you that it just felt right for that particular novel i actually wrote a version with a declaration and it it just it didn't work that's one of the sadnesses and difficulties of my job sometimes you're like i so wanted to do this and i can't work out why it isn't fitting in this situation but it just isn't so yeah i went for something i haven't done before which is you know we just looked at each other and we knew <laughs> yeah i'm so glad you said that though because i was going to ask if there was a reason it, there wasn't in this one but, but not not well, that you've abandoned <laughs> how much you love the big declaration okay so that makes me feel better <laughs> Well, we're going to change directions a little bit. But in Just Last Night, there's a scene with one of the characters reading her horoscope, which delighted me because you wrote, it was an auspicious day for Aries, which happens to be my sign. I squealed a little and and (laughs) screenshotted that. Also, from our research, which is basically Instagram stalking you, we know (laughs) that you are a Pisces, which I am actually on the cusp of Pisces and Aries. Wow! So I was like, oh my gosh, this one was really in the stars for us. Do you relate at all to your... We've found that some people relate, some people don't. And uh, we wanted to know where you fall on that spectrum. I would like to say I'm a skeptic. However, Mm. Pisces are supposed to be oversensitive, dreamy, creative, mutable types. Absolutely. We're quite emotional. So what can I say? It has (laughs) me nailed. So... (laughs) You're like, I would be skeptical if it wasn't so right. (laughs) Exactly. So we we ask all our authors what they're loving right now, if there are any books or shows or movies that you're really into that you think our listeners might want to know about. Oh, God. Do you know what? I'm habitually terrible at this question because I don't read, I avoid reading my own genre when I'm in first draft phase, which means that most of the time I'm not reading things that I can readily recommend. I am a huge, huge fan of Sally Thorne. Yes. Mm -hmm. Her book's just read today, Second First Impressions. Oh, okay. And I think she's absolutely brilliant. And I've had the great pleasure of spending time with her and she is the ultimate writer's brain. You know, we're talking about, did the little old lady get mugged? You will be 
sat there in a cafe with Sally and she'll say, oh, look at that person over there. And she'll just make up a story about them that's utterly amazing. Oh. So frankly, it's quite frightening to spend time around talented writers because you, <laughs> you get imposter syndrome starts quite <laughs> What am I reading at the moment? I'm trying to think what sticks to my bed. Um, I know I've got into reading Jean Le Carré because I started mm-hmm. watching... Oh God, what was the what was the thing with Tom Hiddleston? It was really good. It was adapted. Night the Night Manager. So I started reading John Le Carre. See, this is why I'm rubbish because I'm sure people want to hear rom com recommendations from me. Oh um, no, no, we actually find that most authors end up recommending things that are way out of their realm, like poetry and thrillers yeah. for the rom com, and then the thriller writers love romance. So as a writer, I think reading outside your genre is good because you see how things are done in other genres, and it's great yeah. keeping. With your genre, you are breaking out of your own little, not little, your own box of a novelist. label because you're charged with writing the screenplay for the adaptation of You Had Me at Hello. Oh, well, mm. (laughs) I habitually, habitually get asked this and I'm so sorry. This is entirely my fault. I need to update my um, website. Okay. Actually working on a script for a film of my book, Who's That Girl? I have just signed an option for a film version of If I Never Met You. Oh, well, the, oh, nice. the, the question still stands because I was wondering how you are adapting to the change in style from a novel to a script. and With difficulty. Yeah, <laughs> I, you're not alone in that. A lot of our other writers who have taken on that task, it's a completely different mindset. It really is. I mean, where I think my journalism helps is that I'm quite good at standing back from the novel and knowing that what worked on the page, I'm quite iconoclastic and what worked on the page will not work on the screen and being prepared to kind of rewrite the dialogue and things like that. So quite good from that point of view. I'm much more weak on the kind of speed and movement and overall structure of a script. And I downloaded and read from first page to last the shooting script of When Harry Met Sally. Mm. because I thought let's just look at the absolute the champagne version yes (laughs) even if mine is Prosecco (laughs) uh, that was really interesting but it made me realize that possibly what a romantic comedy needs is a lot of laughs per page that you Mm. need to be really dense with the jokes I mean when Harry met Sally you can just you sit there guffawing at the page yeah well that one mm-hmm. is the gold standard <laughs> it of, is of, you know yes. billy crystal and that, yeah that is just yeah i lived half that i would i yes. think too but. Yes. What, but what's interesting is it's got that incredible cast and obviously i'm not taking anything away from the quality of the performances i think nora efron had written something that would be funny even if quite flat actors were playing yeah. because yes. it's so mm-hmm. funny on the page yes um, and well, she is off. yeah She's, yeah, she's up there. She's the best. So sorry, that's a a ramble. Yeah, the truth matter is it it is difficult. And I think that novelists are very indulged because somebody once said that the thing about being a novelist is you're your own lighting director. You're your own, (laughs) uh, you you know, you cast the novel, you are the editor, you know, all of that. You're not the literal editor, obviously, because it passes on to your real editor. But you know what I mean? I choose where a chapter ends and all the rest of it. Whereas obviously with scripts, there's so many other considerations around that scene perhaps right. even practical ones or I don't know you've, you've picked right. an expensive, expensive setting or something yes. um, so yeah it is tricky I'm just trying to lean I love writing dialogue so I'm just trying to lean really hard on that to cover up my shortcomings <laughs> 
Well, oh, that's, that's good. Though. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. kind of stuff that makes a, a script come alive on the screen. So, yeah. well, and you're funny. Your your dialogue is oh, witty and funny, and so I do think that's smart to rely on that because you've definitely got that nailed already. And thank you're right, you. around. Thank you very much. I was laughing out loud at your book. So oh, there you excellent. go. And please tell us, assure us that you haven't abandoned novels, even as you attempt the screenplay. Not at all. I'm contractually obliged to write more. <laughs> <laughs> Good news for us. <laughs> Thank you. No, I've signed another two book deal with Harper. So yes, two more after just last night at the moment. That's wonderful. And can yeah. you give us anything or it's still in, I, in the works? It's still in the works. But I think after just last night, something I'm going to lean quite hard on is a lot of comedy and situational humor. And there will be the darker elements because I think that's when I write best. But I think that I'm going to ease up a little bit on intense brutal heroes with painful mm-hmm. secrets. I think that with this one, I think I'm going to inject a lot of optimism. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I think that's the effect of the pandemic. I was going to say, yes. we all really need that. So more good news. Thank you. So before we go, Lavari, tell our readers and listeners where they can find you on social media or webpage or Ooh. what's the best way to follow you? I would have said Twitter, where my handle is at Vari McEff. Obviously, if you know the weird spelling of my name. And then Instagram which you mentioned, if you want to see endless pictures of my ludicrous looking fluffy cat, that's the place to go. (laughs) Perfect. By the way, I also have one of those names. It's maybe not as much as yours, but my parents could have spelled Corinne the way so many other people spell it, C-O-R-I-N-N-E. And no, they decided to to make it unnecessarily difficult and have me be called Karen for my whole life. When it's... I was well, I, I was quietly, silently grateful for Kate for introducing you. Yes, yes that's how I good. realized to not say Karen. <laughs> you would not be alone in that, but I share your experiences there. Well, it was absolutely lovely speaking with you today, Vari. I feel like I got mm-hmm. so much out of this conversation, even more mm-hmm. than just enjoying the book, which was a great experience. Thank you so Thank much. You. Absolutely brilliant questions. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women this has been pop fiction women with corinne and kate if you enjoyed this show please tell the complicated women in your life and the men who love them yes tell them to listen and then to follow on spotify or review and subscribe on apple podcasts and of course share on social media tag us with your favorite books TV shows and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. 
For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.